You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade. And my guest today is Dave Donovan. Uh, Dave, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, certainly. So I blog under the name Dave Donovan, and I run a smallish YouTube channel called The Distributist, which talks about contemporary culture war issues, a smattering of economic issues where I kind of am against everyone. I'm I'm sort of unorthodox in that regard. And uh, I, I guess I'm quite interested in cultural discourse and how YouTube has developed as an ideas platform. Uh, you know, I could probably offer some insight in that regard. And I talk a lot about the culture war generally. So, yeah. And um, a couple months ago, you invited me on your podcast, which also appears on YouTube. Um, and that's how we uh, first came in contact. And uh, we'll include a link to that episode below. And some of the um, questions I'm going to ask kind of flow from our conversation and also how people reacted uh, to, to that conversation. Yeah. So why don't you, um, why don't you describe the, uh, yeah, you have like multiple titles for your podcast, mini podcast empire. Oh, can you kind of like lay out what, what they are? Yeah. So I, I recently, I started a collective blog for people who roughly agree with me. Um, just basically, it's a more or less traditionalist um, kind of Catholic perspective that doesn't have very – I mean, largely we talk about just generally problems more than solutions. And I titled this the blog Via Obscura, which is also the name of the podcast, and it was broadly inspired by people like Rod Reher and Patrick Deneen from Notre Dame and their discussions of the problems of modernity, which is largely what we talk about on the blog. I, like I said before, we talk mostly about problems and less about solutions. Uh, I like to consider myself more or less unaffiliated in the terms of political solutions because I don't think that we have a lot of the fundamental questions answered yet. This probably does attract a lot of people who are looking for answers or who are disenfranchised, um, but that's, that's the nature of YouTube these days. And I think, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit, but that's broadly what I was attempting to do is to create sort of a front page for people who wanted to talk about these problems and uh, write articles and so so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, so the term I remember you using to self-identify your politics or your area of the political spectrum was dissident right. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk about that term and what, you know, what makes you a dissident and where do you, where, who else identifies, if anyone, <laughs> with, with that term? Well, the problem is, is that almost everyone identifies with that term. It's a very common term on generally, I, I wouldn't say, no, I wouldn't say YouTube generally. I think a lot of people tend to use words like classically liberal or something like that. Uh, it's, it's a purely negative term. All it means is that we are disenchanted with Republican politics, with neoliberal economic policy, and with the culture war discussion as it's been carried forward by people like National Review, and we're looking for alternatives. Now, this, again, since it's purely negative, it could encompass any number of people. Uh, but it, you know, largely that those are the things that uh, distinguish us. Now, I think that from my point of view, the issues that I like to talk about are sort of societal assumptions that we've built in uh, to our society uh, for society for a very long time. And Patrick Deneen talks about this in his book, um, Why Liberalism Failed. 
And and it seems that we've we've kind of constructed modern society on a number of assumptions about how humans operate that might not be correct. And I think that inside the mainstream right these days, there is a very, very constrained orthodoxy of the types of opinions you have to have. And I think the dissident right is just trying to break free from that. Mm-hmm. And I haven't read – I'm not super familiar with Deneen. I, I, I know a little bit more about Rod Dreher. He actually was an occasional blogging heads uh, person about a decade ago, but then he uh, decided he didn't want to do it anymore, um, <laughs> And uh, which is maybe part of his kind of like withdrawing like from modern society idea. And he wrote this book <laughs> called The Benedict Option. You can correct any of this. That's wrong. It's kind of like saying uh, you know conservative Christians – should basically like withdraw from modern society and like tend to their own uh, concerns within like like-minded communities instead of like battling it out with people who they fundamentally uh, disagree with. Um, mm-hmm. But but with with Deneen, when he said the you know the failure of liberalism, he's not. Is he talking about Barack Obama's liberalism or is he talking about like the 18th century's liberalism? He's talking about that we – now, I, I really want to be careful paraphrasing this, right, because I'm speaking for somebody else. We did have him on a podcast, but he's talking about an extensive failure of Western thought for the last 300 years that we essentially – sometime in the 18th century, and it's it's debatable about whether – you know, this is always the question. Did the founding fathers know that the, this sort of equivocation was being made? We moved from a concept of liberty being something fundamentally connected to virtue to a liberty that fundamentally was synonymous with license. And because of this and because of a variety of other secularizing elements that took place in Western society, some of them good, some of them not so good, we've ended up with what – Patrick Deneen, and I, again, I'm paraphrasing here, would call anti-culture, sort of a culture that exists only as a clearing zone for global capital or neoliberal economics. And this is what, well, a lot of people, certainly the Catholic world have been pointing to for a very long time. Patrick Deneen put it in a very particular way, and I want to be very careful that this is just a paraphrase of his work. Um, I definitely recommend having him on. He's brilliant. Uh but I think people are now wondering, well, you know, what, what, what about this concept of liberty, equality, and fraternity? These enlightenment ideas kind of had flaws in them. Was, were they fundamentally insufficient from the get-go? Were they self-devouring? Did they have this force that couldn't be stopped? And, um, I don't know. That's sort of where I'm picking it up. Dreher, you know, and this is sort of like, I really liked reading the Benedict Option, but, I, I mean, the, Dreher is sort of cagey about what he actually wants. He said he wants to retreat from society, but in interviews, he's denied that he wants some kind of retreat. I think that he's, Dreher understands that the mainstream no longer supports a lot of the questions and a lot of the uh, answers that Christianity has. It, it, it shrinks from spiritual and religious answers, even though I think it supports sort of some secular religions to speak of. But uh, I I think that Dreher sort of he's notably not good at giving kind of a perspective on a solution, and uh, so I I don't I don't see that the solution is to retreat. I think the solution is for more discussion and for building something that is an alternative to the mainstream perspectives on these things. Um. So. Yeah, so you you uh, said earlier uh, your area is to spend more time analyzing the problems than coming up with solutions, but the yeah. mind naturally goes to, okay, what are you talking about? Like, um, 
I didn't read, I read like some reviews of, of Dreher's book, um, but I didn't read it itself. And I kind of imagined like, you know, something akin to like an Amish community that like is living in a, you know, in kind of semi seclusion, like, but not total seclusion. So not like, uh, like the Branch Davidians or something, but mm-hmm. like, um, and I, I say that because I recently <laughs> finished listening to this podcast on Slate that was about, uh, the Ruby Ridge, um, disaster. And they, um, they talk about the branch of Indians as well. But anyway, uh, you know, people who, you know, maybe they, they interact with society through some form of limited commerce, but they basically, uh, school their own children and, uh, you know, their worship services are kind of, you know, their religions infused in their daily life and their strictures are kind of, you know, societal strictures, like everyone just accepts them about like, you know, uh, public dress and modesty and things like that. So is that, Something that people are is, is that accurate well, to what Dreher was proposing? Or is that I, I something that appeals really, to anyone out I there? I feel really uncomfortable speaking for Dreher and Dineen because uh, you know they're they have lots of layers of their work. All I can say is that I was inspired by this, but I can say that in the communities I usually talk about, we talk about various models of maintaining a separation from modernity with at the same time interaction from it. It's not all isolated. As a matter of fact, I was really impressed to see going to New York that there is this enormous, essentially religiously separatist, orthodox Jewish community living in New York, which is, when you think about it, that's like the heart of modernity, and they seem to be thriving. So this model, this model, oftentimes people portray this model as something that's sort of fundamentally doomed, but I think we have a variety of quite interesting examples of people who are creating separate pieces from themselves right in the center of what we would ordinarily think is modernity and global capital. And, and so, you know, but of course it's, it's hard. Uh, people point to the Mormons, people point to a variety of other Orthodox Catholic communities. Um, and you can pick out good examples here or there. Personally, I think that we need to go in for a lot of different experimentation. Uh, you know, I, I don't like the idea of breaking apart, uh, but you know, I don't like the idea that we become more fragmented, but I will say this in the last 40 years, it's apparent to me at least, and people like Jordan Peterson and Jonathan Haidt and, and Robert Putnam bring this up as well, that American society and the West has fragmented into individuals. Um, we can't communicate with a lot of people as individuals. So while we're fragmenting into individuals, why not form communities with people of like mind and like value. It seems that that's something thicker and more meaningful than simply isolating oneself into, you know, your own little cubicle or your own little basement and constantly seeking self-validation for yourself online. I think I I know what perhaps it's not as healthy as we might imagine some completely cohesive um, multipolar society, but I I don't see a solution for, for that utopia quite yet. Yeah. I mean, I think the like dream of the internet from 20 years ago was kind of like you could build this kind of community online and then people sort of did it, but it hasn't like worked out super great. Um, and we're seeing like the, um, how to describe it. I mean, we're seeing like the offshoots and like the cancerous growths of this constantly. Um, one we'll maybe talk about a little bit and you did a, a video partially about this was the, uh, the shooter uh, at the synagogue in Pittsburgh who was, yeah. you know, involved in Gab, which is kind of a clone of Twitter that um, became very popular with people on the right and far right because they mm. uh, didn't moderate 
posts the way that Twitter was doing. Um, and so a lot of people went there and this, this, uh, guy went there as well and then went on this, um, you know, spree, mm-hmm. spree killing. Um, so, and then you have, you have the communities that have kind of grown around particular like personalities on YouTube, for example. So, so let's, let's just bring it back to a couple questions I had, um, after, um, the episode that I did, uh, with you about two months ago and was posted on your, your YouTube channel. So I read the comments to that and they, uh, were not positive overall, I would say. In fact, they were overwhelmingly well, yeah. negative. Um, which I mean, you know, they, so the people who follow you are much more conservative than I am. So they were like, who is this guy and what is he, uh, babbling on about? But there were a couple things that, a couple, tr- so I, I, I mean, I, you know, Bluggingheads episodes appear on YouTube as well, and there's people on YouTube who are always happy to tell you that you suck and should yes. go k- kill yourself or whatever. And uh, the, but there are a couple things that surprised me. So the first one was, I guess, I'll, in the, I'll add here. Uh, I kind of moderate the comments, like deleting anything that I think is incredibly egregious. But I don't have the time to moderate. Like YouTube generates an enormous amount of comments, yeah. so. Comments is not an endorsement, but go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, and Blogging Heads does it as well. I'm actually the one who usually does it, and I think maybe we get fewer comments than than you do usually, so it's a little easier. But uh, yeah, generally, I'm I think I'm, I'm probably more heavy handed with my <laughs> deletion than than you are. But anyway, um, so the first thing was that in the episode, I kind of offhandedly said something like. You know, I don't consider myself a leftist, or I'm far from a leftist, or something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then there are at least f- like five, possibly more people in the comments who are like, "This guy's a leftist," <laughs> or like, "He thinks he's not a leftist." Like, what's he smoking? Something along those lines. So I don't consider myself a leftist. I actually, um, about a year ago, I was interviewed for an article that was in Vice. Or not interviewed. I just emailed in responses. Mm-hmm. An article in Vice. I was like, "Who are the people who self-identify as neoliberals?" Like, where are they? Are they actually out there? And I was like, well, I'm kind of a neoliberal. I'll, I'll email in. So, like, neoliberals and leftists are, like, you know, going at each other's throats online, like, very far apart. So I was surprised for, to see people like, you know, who is this leftist? <laughs> you know, Arya Cohen-Wade. Um, so that's just, like, you know, I'm sure I do not appreciate all the gradations on the right that um, that exist, the way that people, you know, average person on the right doesn't appreciate the gradations on the on the left that exists between, you know, uh, you know, there's, there's like a, a dozen or more brands of socialists, uh, battling it out on Twitter at, at any day and, uh, to, you know, to group me in with. So I, so I basically think like leftist basically means like economic socialist. So uh, what uh, do you, th- so what do you think like leftist means to your audience and what, where's the disconnect here where they think I'm a leftist and I don't think I'm a leftist. Probably it has to do with social issues that would be my guess for my audience. Again, it's all relative because I interact with very far right wing people on YouTube. And, you know, I've, I've had months where all of uh, my entire comment section have been accusing me of being a certain ethnicity, which I'm not uh, uh, from the right, essentially. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I, I kind of sympathize, like, you know, you're, you're always, you're always going to get accused of, of being this thing. I would assume that, and I, I'm kind of struggling to remember what we talked about. I think we talked about media bias and, uh, and social issues. And I think that really from my audience's point of view, what they're probably the most concerned about is our, our social issues, things surrounding abortion and the culture war. And then the representation of those opinions in the mainstream media, 
which a lot of people who are on the conservative side of social issues feel like they're fundamentally not represented in either the academia or the mainstream media. And because of that, uh, because of that, I think that anyone who's seen as defending the mainstream media is assumed to be the left. Because, you know, you look over at the other side and you see a unified wall, even though when you're inside of it, you see gradations. And it's funny you mentioned, like, the gradations thing, because a few months ago, I don't know if this... <coughs> I remember about this being written about in, I think, the New York Times and a few other places. There was this report published by, uh, what was it? Uh, it was called Alternative Influence Report, published by Data and Society. Yes. Author Rebecca Lewis. I'm familiar and with that. I was, yeah, exactly. So I was, I was reading this and maybe this is just the corollary here, right? Like they, uh, they, they talk about people who are taking YouTube to the right generally. And the assumption is that these people are all kind of, in a giant network and there's this there's this diagram on page 10 of this this report that has all of these different YouTube personalities all linked together in this big spider web in this in this uh, distance diagram and uh, I, I I was reading it and I'm like I can't believe these people are associated with each other there's like two YouTubers coach redpill and Sargon of Akkad right next to each other as if they're ideologically linked and they spent the better half of this year trying to destroy each other. <laughs> and, and, and so I guess this might be just always the thing that when you're looking in the, to the distance, you don't see the gradations and the fights that go on in between uh, these communities. Uh, the distant right or the YouTube right in general is not a community. It's a variety of different people who vehemently disagree with each other, who are trying to, win the prize of being the standard bearer for counter progressivism in America and in the West. Now the person who gets that, but that's what the battle is. So most of the time you spend fighting with these other people. And so the, the associations, although, you know, certainly there's the association in that you talk and argue with these people. It's, it's by no means uh, a, a uniform position. Although I understand that like, if you were looking into it from the outside, you'd probably go like, oh, mate, there's this thing called the YouTube right. Just like looking at the media establishment from YouTube, you might see someone who's a moderate like yourself and go, okay, well, they're part of that establishment. They're part of the left. People talk a lot about blue checkmark Twitter. And, and I you know that's, that's a meaningless term because there's a lot of people who are sympathetic with me, like Ross Douthat, who fall into that category. Or should I say I'm sympathetic with him? Like, but, but still it's associated with the other side. And that's probably where the comments are coming from. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, in my view, like liberal and leftist are different. And I, I mean, part of it is these stupid terms that we're stuck with and we have classical liberal and liberal and neoliberal and, like it would be nice if we could you know throw all this out and replace it with a yeah. series of numbers or something like that. But anyway, so like you know, a, a leftist would be like uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, um, you know, and Barack Obama is not a leftist; he's a liberal. Um, but then the other comment I would make is, you know, this is just uh, you know seems to be like a classic thing about tribalism. Um, you know, within your group, there's all sorts of people and. They have, uh, you know, varying characteristics, but you'll probably like forgive them their sins. And, you know, if this person over here did something nasty, well, maybe they just uh, woke up on the wrong side of the bed or didn't have their coffee or something. And, you know, basically a good person, blah, blah, blah. The people opposing you, well, they're like a mass of angry, an angry horde of invaders, uh, undifferentiated and they all suck. 
And uh, not only do they never wake up on the wrong side of the bed this uh, this morning, they're all like essentially evil people, like at their core, and that's who they are. And we have to defeat them. And I think like that's you know you can <laughs> apply that in multiple realms. And I w- I was joking on a recent um, podcast that uh, anytime you like 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 once a month, there's an article that is written that where the headline is something like. Um, the dark heart of the online trombone community. And it's like, you know, there's websites and message boards just devoted to people who love trombones, but, like, there's a scandal where people, like, someone did something horrible and people are fighting each other and they can't even believe it, and then they, like, broke off to have, like, two separate trombone communities. And it's just like, it seems to happen. (laughs) Online makes it happen much more, but it doesn't even be, like, something (laughs) something human into, like, we're always, like, putting ourselves into in-groups and out-groups and, you know, viewing our, like, the in-groups, people are, like, basically good and the out-group people are basically bad and, 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 yeah, this repeats, like, over and over again. I do think, though, that on the right, right now, right, I think right now in America and in the West, the right is destroyed. I think that it took a fatal hit in 2012, largely, well, with the election, re-election of Barack Obama, which was one thing, and, Specifically how Obama won that campaign was another, but also due to the fact that it was very apparent that gay marriage was a fait accompli. And since then, the right's been dealing with the fact that it is mortally wounded and it is reconfiguring itself. Now, there are a lot of forces that have issues with the progressive motion of society. And I understand that inside the progressive movement, there are neoliberals, there are hardcore Marxists, there are socialists, there are third worldists. And there's probably a similar battle going on right now. But I feel, especially with the election of Donald Trump, the right has signaled that everything is up for grabs. The, per- the people who write the ideology of the dominant counter-progressive movement is, is up for question. And that, I think, is what people are looking to compete over and talk about in, in, in variety of spheres, certainly on YouTube. But I think also you see this going on between inter-right conflicts between people, say, like Tucker Carlson and Ben Shapiro, which I think there was a debate that took place this week between the two of them. So I think that the right in particular is in a a moment of transition, and I don't think people really know where it's going to go. Yeah, I mean, there's, well, I mean, there's, there's ferment on both sides. I think on the left, the ferment is primarily like whether, um, uh, like how much to embrace a social democratic or democratic socialism um, for the future. Uh, that seems to be where the young, young, the, a lot of the energy among young people is. And then, yeah, the, on the right, there's like all sorts of splinterings and ferment. Uh, so maybe we'll talk about Trump in a minute. But there's one other, one other thing I wanted to ask about mm-hmm. uh, the comments to, to uh, the interview I did with you. So in addition to being called a leftist, the other thing that I was called repeatedly was an NPC. Um, oh, so I had only learned what that term means like within like within the previous month. So then it was it was funny to just say like, oh, what is this? Oh, that's what it is. And then see that people are saying like, oh, you are that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can you define NPC and also say why you think uh, your comment just said this person is an NPC? Well, I, I did a video on the NPC in which I ended it saying we're all NPCs and quoted a variation on Pogo saying that I've met the NPC and he is me. Uh, but 
But okay, so now I'm, I'm struggling. So the NPC, and I don't have the report in front of me, the NPC meme came from a little bit of an old sociological or social psychology report from 2008 or 2009 that discussed people's reaction and reporting of inner experience. So inner experience is the narration that we all experience when we go day to day. You think you have sort of this narrative flowing in your mind, right? And so this report quite surprisingly found that a not insignificant percentage of people uh, on on just when they're generally surveyed reported no inner experience. Now, like all things Internet, this report six or seven years later found its way onto 4chan. Uh, uh, I mean, that's the emergence of, of half the memes, uh, uh, humor, certainly, but a lot of bad ideas. And this became sort of the sort of became sort of a trope that the report was an indication that like a huge number of people were just sort of zombies parroting the, the, the conventional wisdom of their time. Now the difficulty is that almost everyone in this world parrots the conventional wisdom of their time. Only a very few percentage of people question the conventional wisdom. And even among them, know like myself like i don't know if i do that actually but you know even if you are an intellectual you lapse back into conventional wisdoms as soon as you're not thinking about it so this sort of became like this explanation of of people of of sort of not really like socialist like far left point of view but sort of like your conventional moderate you're sort of mark zuckerberg you're sort of barack obama supporter liberal the the Hill, you, know, you know, the middle of the road, uh, Democratic Party establishment. And uh, the explanation on 4chan became that this was the reason why these views were so dominant on 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 Twitter is that the, that it was essentially uh, people people uh, repeating conventionalism back to themselves and sort of the the the. the the meme always had this like blank face, Wojak NPC, like with the black dot eyes saying something yeah, like so people orange have probably man seen, racist, orange man bad or something yeah, like that. Yeah, people have probably seen this original yeah. meme at least. It's like a gray face that has like some wrinkles, like a bald kind of like, it looks like a, like an alien kind of. And yeah, and then it was replaced by like this, like a blank Kind of. like, like data from Star Trek or something, right? And, uh, and, and it's usually like orange man racist, orange man bad. Uh, you know, uh, sort of setting up the fact that Trump criticism has become so mainstream on Twitter that you kind of heard it all before and you were just kind of like cycling through, okay, right? We don't like Trump. Uh, <laughs> it, it seems to be very acceptable, uh, opinion. And so that's the explanation of the NPC, man. But NPC uh, stands for non-player character. Is that right? Yeah, it's so. So it's like a video because, game thing, also. Yeah, because I, I'm not really a gamer, but so I'm not everything on 4chan has to be analogized to video games. This became, this became the 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 people who have a lack of inner experience became associated with non-player characters, sort of objects in in role-playing game universes that look like people but have completely procedurally generated dialogues they have some things that they're designed to say in sort of a decision tree like format but once you take them off that decision tree they just repeat and reset and um i mean i guess it's sort of depressing about human nature to notice that that most people even most intelligent people only do have a limited number of responses uh but you know of course Again, because we're in we're in current year, 
this will naturally get associated with your political enemies. I think Twitter exacerbated this slightly by cracking down on the the meme and saying that it was dehumanizing uh, because it was very similar to a meme that the left had where everyone on the right was a Russian bot. Uh, so, right. Um, so, okay. Yeah. yeah. I think this, I, someone could write a book about this. I think it's like a, it's a very complex topic that touches on a number of the flashpoints of our era. So, um, okay. So just like, you know, the, the no inner life thing, no inner monologue, like that doesn't seem, okay. That doesn't make sense to me at all because I have an inner monologue, like, uh, hmm. and, but there's no way you can know that. So this is like a philosophical puzzle where it's like, there's no way that I can tell that anyone else in the universe is conscious because, uh, uh all I have access to is my own inner thoughts yeah. and everyone, everything else could be like a projection by super <clears throat> smart aliens or something, you know, so whatever. Um, so, you know, that this is a little bit like that. Um, uh, part of it seems very juvenile to me. It's like, the kid who like gets into punk music at age 13 and like doesn't want to hear that mainstream crap anymore. And they're going to the punk shows and they, this is the real music and everyone else is just a fucking corporate drone, man, because they're listening to whatever. Um, so, well, four chan, right? So I mean, four chan, right. So once you're on four chan, you're, you're already like semi alienated from, from the rest of society. Um, I mean, the Twitter side of it is like, well, the weird thing about Twitter is there are actually bots on there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there are artificial people on there who inter who we know I think they cracked out on a lot of them were interacting with people and parroting uh pro Trump rhetoric during the twenty sixteen election. So one of the mm-hmm. things you see a lot on like resistance Twitter is like accusing Trump people of being bots. Yeah. Exactly. Say like ignore them they're a bot. Um are they a bot? Like it's it's really impossible to tell at this point because we know that bots do exist. They're probably not a bot because they cracked down on some of them, but like Twitter sucks, so they probably didn't do a very good job on cracking down on them. So there are yeah, there are people out there, some of them seem to be operating out of Russia who are uh pretending to be other people or just like or computer algorithms or something like that. Um Yeah, I mean and then it's it gets back to the uh the tribalism side, like I'm, I'm a special person. Like, I know what's really going on. All these people out there, you know, they're just walking around. They don't, they have a couple thoughts. My cat just jumped up <laughs> behind me. My cat definitely has some, some thoughts going through her mind yeah, every day. That's um, not an NPC. <laughs> um, you know, like they, you know, do they, and then it's like, well, do they really matter? Like, it, like if you're playing a, a, a video game, like you can go up to the NPC and like punch them and that'd mm. be fine. Right, because like it doesn't matter for your quest or whatever, and they're not they're not real. Like no, nothing in there is real, but but um, they're especially not real because they don't have any role to play. So yeah, yeah it's kind of like, well, what do you what do you even matter? You're a essentially like a, a zombie. Um, yeah. It kind of remind it reminds me of that um, that eighties movie They Live, where the guy gets the glasses and when he puts them on, he sees like all the corporate. Um, yeah, messaging and he sees that like half of people are like alien zombies aliens. walking around. Well, what's funny is that that's John Carpenter, right? Well, th- that was distinctly associating the aliens' point of view with a, a more right-wing perspectives, sort of the Reaganomics type thing, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I mean, the, the, the aliens are promoting like Reagan capitalism. <laughs> so I mean, it seems like this uh, this trope of people who agree with me are unreal alien robot things. I mean, you can even go back to the seventies with the Stepford wise thing too, right? Uh, this, this seems to be a rather common portrayal in media. I guess, I guess because we're in our present age, everything becomes much more magnified and much faster, right? 
you get an immediate these these memes just pop up instantaneously as opposed to having to be put through filmmaking where the artist can take a little bit more subtlety. I mean, I think John Carpenter definitely meant they live to be a setup of the Reagan the Reagan neocon attitudes of the 80s. But I think that there was enough, I mean, he had enough self-awareness as a director to not make it too on the nose, right? Whereas I think in the internet culture, subtlety is just sort of a totally lost art, if it ever was something on internet culture to begin with, and certainly not on 4chan. <laughs> um, yeah, and just the way that things progress from a couple, like, te- teenage boys or whoever these people are on 4chan to, like, bubbling up and then uh, people seeing me and saying, you have no inner life. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure like all humans like have an inner life unless they're, you know, like brain damage or catatonic or something. So I think this is an idea that we should not embrace um, that there's certain people walking around who are, you know, yeah, have no inner monologue, no inner life, no select spark within them and are just drones. Um, that's not the best, but yeah, I, I agree that it's, it can apply it either way. Um, uh, politically, and um, you could think of it, 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 honestly, I think it makes more sense if we look in, like, post-World War II politics in America to, for the left person to be pointing at the conservatives and say they're just empty drones mm-hmm. and, like, you know, suburban conformity, <laughs> the man in the gray flannel suit, and, yeah, the yeah. John Carpenter critique, so, I don't know. <laughs> um, it, it's, 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 it's interesting and odd and, and, and somewhat disturbing. I mean, I'm sure we'll get to something like Jordan Peterson, but I mean, a lot of my questions for the left always have, you know, I, I, I'll just introduce this character, Jordan Peterson. This is probably the one person that kind of got their start on YouTube who is now so mainstream that you don't need to have an explanation about who he is, right? Right. Although he wasn't a nobody. He was a tenured professor at the university. Yeah, he was a tenured professor, right? And he had a number of well-received books. Um, but you know, and, and and people in my position who are who are much more critical of the mainstream, who are I mean, I don't want to say radical because, like I said, I'm not really someone who plays politics. I just describe culture. But but again, I take radical critiques of the culture. I'm very critical of Jordan Peterson because I think he's kind of like he feels like a giant band aid over our present problems. He doesn't actually seem to address like the core issues with the economy, the core issues with how we set up culture, the core issues with how we address religion and faith and tradition and all of these things that seem to have much, much deeper roots. And, you know, we can't go back to the seventies or the eighties, but, but there is one thing that, that I remember him bringing up when he, he went on the Bill Maher show. I forget what it's called. It's not politically incorrect, right? That's the nineties, whatever Bill Maher's show was. And he was on a panel with a bunch of people who were anti-Trumpers, which is not uncommon for Bill Maher. And I'm, I don't like Trump. He kind of is offensive in his personal life to my religious idea of how a leader should operate. Uh, but at the end, Jordan Peterson says, okay, Trump's bad, you know, but Trump has like 35 to 40 percent of this country behind him. So if Trump leaves office, how are you going to create a polity? How are you going to create some kind of way to move forward in this country? that incorporates these people who feel like they have deep, deep, deep grievances with mainstream politics. And I feel like that was an excellent question. And it's something that I think some people have brought up a little bit, but I have always wanted to ask to the left is this just, 
you know, it seems like you have a variety of people who are deeply dissatisfied with how the present system works. And there never seems to be a discussion about how we're going to, you know, move forward as a, a, a polity that's not constantly at each other's throats. Yeah, that's interesting. So just you, you, you raise an interesting point about, you know, coming from the right, uh, just viewing Peterson as a Band-Aid. You know, um, Peterson, in, in addition to all of his other accomplishments in life, he's a self-help author. Yeah. And um, I was – recently there was this um, review of a self-help book. The book is called something like Girl, Wash Your Hair. Um, mm-hmm. It's very it's, – it's like a bestseller. It's targeted at women. And um, – yeah, and it's, it's self-help and it has, it tells this woman's life story, blah, blah. Um, so there, there was a re- review of it that ran in BuzzFeed and it was like faulting the author for not kind of taking like a more fundamental critique or realizing that, you know, if someone like the, the review mentioned like a refugee at the border whose child had been, uh, mm. taken away and like, what is this? What is wash your hair girl hold out for them? And it was kind of like, well, a self-help book isn't going to fix the border crisis. Like yeah. a self-help book is for the self. And it's right there in the name. And Jordan Peterson, uh, a lot of his stuff is like about what you should do. You should stand up yeah. straight. You should clean your room. You should pet a cat. If you're walking along the street, whatever, you know, don't, you should not yell at children skateboarding or his other strange rules. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, so self-help is like a lucrative <laughs> place to go if you want to write a book and uh, his book has been a bestseller. And so, you know, uh, Mazel Tov Jordan for, for writing a, you know, making millions of dollars off of this book. Uh, yeah. He's, Jordan Peterson is not going to solve our societal problems. Um, but you no. can, you can see why his, you can see why he's popular because he's giving people kind of like practical or semi-practical advice that they can implement in their lives. Um, There's a strange connection though, between the macro and the micro, right? Because, these dysfunctions are appearing in people's lives because they they have a lack of constraints and a lack of opportunity, right? And and those simultaneous things make it very, very easy to sort of let yourself fall into this self-indulgent lifestyle. And this happens on in really in both sexes, right? Although I'm sure if you're on YouTube, you can encounter more men in this position than women. Uh I you know, the demographics just go that way on the platform. Uh but but it, it, it's a part of modernity that we have this asymmetry where some people have so much wealth and so little of the wealth actually comes from from a career that the, the, some profession, some perfection in themselves that they're procuring. And so much of it comes from the surroundings, from the opportunities that have been handed down for them, that is very, very easy to just lapse into this complacency. And so the, sort of. I hate using the political as personal, but in, in some sense, the economic circumstances and the cultural circumstances have fed into an individual life that is very, very unfulfilled and very, very, uh, I don't want to say degenerate, but, you know, self-destructive. How about? Yeah. And the, you know, um, the, some of the authors you mentioned previously, Putnam, um, you know, talk about, uh, isolation and lack of community in modern society. And, um, I, I don't see, uh, a, I don't know. I, I don't see like a political solution like anywhere that would actually help with that. It's kind of like these giant forces dealing with, um, the economy and technology, um, uh, leading people to make these kind of decisions where like they, they isolate themselves and maybe they, 
instead of you know going to the roller rink or something, they spend all day watching YouTube videos, um, mm. like like this very YouTube video. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so the, the shut you know the shut in demographic has probably increased, um, and the technology enables that, and uh, you can get food delivered to your house by. Uh, pushing buttons on your phone and you can yeah. stream movies and uh, I did another episode on this uh, about millennials being homebodies and wanting to stay in instead of going out with their friends. Um, so, the, you know, so, so there's that and then there's, there's like the um, dis, you know, dis, disparate fortunes of young men and young women where it seems like young women are doing um, better than young men these days and, and young mm. men are more likely to be uh, alienated from society, and that's where you get like the incel stuff and the kind of people who spend a lot of time on 4chan. Um, these are probably not people who are in like healthy relationships with members of the opposite sex and uh, be feeding, uh, uh, you know, exciting social lives. Um, they're living at home mm-hmm. or or something like that, and uh, spending their time on on 4chan where they can't where they're anonymous and they can't even like accumulate like you know, clout or something where people are like, Oh, that, that person always does good posts. It's like, here's this, just another like anonymous, anonymous person. So I, anyway, I'm rambling. I don't, I don't like see a political solution, um, coming from anywhere to like kind of deal with these, these issues. I, so mm-hmm. I have no, I have no idea what's, what's going to happen. Well, it does seem that, you know, you mentioned the whole relationship dimension that does seem to be something that both men and women complain about a lot. And it, it seems to me that, sort of we never figured out and you know as a sort of a catholic i'm i'm fundamentally critical of the sexual revolution but we never figured out it was always promised to us this kind of you know edenic post-sexual revolution reality of expression and fulfillment but it never seems to arrive and in the meantime it seems that a lot of the things that our grandparents could expect as a matter of course as a matter of growing up uh, are are almost prohibitively denied a lot of people in the millennial and the post-millennial generations. Perhaps denied is a strong word, but are not readily available and very hard to procure. Yeah, I, think I, I agree. I think part yeah. of that has to do with social changes. Uh, part of it has to do with economic changes. Um, you know, the, the the things that, like, make one an adult like in the traditional sense for usually um having a job being married buying a house and having children um and all of those things um are more difficult for uh i assume you're about my age or probably younger uh, you're my generation than uh, the generation yeah. of our parents or grandparents when houses housing was much less expensive um you could get a job more easily with less uh skills or education and uh, yeah, there was also a, a simpler cultural script for meeting, meeting a, a mate and, um, yeah, and then without, you know, I, I, the children was about the same, I guess, but you know, like abortion and, and birth control, uh, changes that somewhat. If you want a question that will distinguish a distant right winger from a normie right winger, uh, simply, simply ask the question about wealth and generations because National Review, in particular, has run numerous of these articles, one written by Kevin Williamson, I believe, that I remember most prominently, where these problems, the ones that you bring up, the ones that the left bring us up, are are, are brought up by people, even people on the right like myself who talk about them, and um, although I mostly talk about culture, like I said, and and the the dismissal is to say, look, our total societal wealth is a lot more 
Just look at the price of a TV. Look at the price of a phone. Look at the price of a refrigerator. It's all down. You can buy more of that stuff. Um, yeah, okay, the wealth, if you want to aggregate it somehow, like maybe if you put it all into a giant money ball, right, it's gotten bigger. But A, as the left is right to point out, that distribution is massively skewed. But that's not the only problem. The, a much more pertinent problem is the one that you just mentioned right now. And that is that the wealth, the, the, the things that have gotten cheaper have been what? Consumer items, consumer electronics, entertainment, eating out, restaurants, all things that people in their 20s like buying but don't really make your life any more fulfilled or any more mature or make having a family any cheaper. What's gotten more expensive? Housing? Transportation and education. Those are the three things you desperately need to have cheap if you want to have a community, a family, and a life that extends into maturity. And we've systematically made those items more expensive at the expense of, well, at, at the benefit of cheaper consumer items. And at, at what level do we have to say that this just isn't really a equitable trade-off? Uh, I don't know if it's reversible. I, I've heard people tell me that there are plans, there are things you could do to essentially make the trade-off better. Uh, but it's something that we're going to notice. And, you know, pointing to the fact that the iPhone is cheap isn't really going to answer this question, uh, despite what a lot of people in National Review might think. Yeah, there was, there was a tweet that went viral that was about this that, like, you know, compared the price of some consumer good, maybe a refrigerator, in, um, you know, 1945 with, with what it is now. And, yeah. you know, I'm sure it, like, it probably was, like, really annoying when you had when you didn't have a refrigerator and you had to like you know have an ice box and you had to go to and the and the you but not not you or me most likely the woman in the household would go to the market every day uh probably walking and or riding a bicycle and uh or taking some form of public transport and picking up the fresh food and bringing it home and you know preparing it and cooking the meal uh for the children and the husband that was probably a you know, a large portion of the day. So like those things, those things have changed. Like I'm glad we have washing machines and, and dishwashers and dryers and uh, so forth. And uh, I'm even glad we have iPhones. Um, I don't know. Is there like a trade off? Like if the iPhones are more expensive, would the housing be cheaper? Like, I don't, I don't see what's the connection there. Well, okay. I mean, I mean, there, there is a little bit of a connection. I'll, I'll say this, uh, I'm a native of Northern California, and I can tell you as a native of Northern California, if you live in the Bay Area, you know that the priority, uh, the level of, uh, this is a, this is a state that people like me are just, you'll never find a person of my opinions in, inside government. You know, a, a, a radical right winger like myself will just never be, you know, I, I might as well just not vote. And, and although, although I don't live there now, but they constantly build new spaces for Amazon, for Google, for all of the Silicon Valley companies. They never build new housing. They, and, and they create restrictions that make building new housing and creating, you know, schools for people in the middle class very, very, very difficult. Uh, now I know there's, for the school question, there's a lot of racial politics that get mixed in with all of this. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that are probably more local that I'm competent to talk about here, but just on the level of, of municipality and how they dedicate land, they build far more jobs than they do housing. And so you've got engineers that earn like $80,000 a year living in these little shacks, these little Harry Potter 
<laughs> apartments under the stairwell sort of deal. Like, and it, it's depressing. And, and I, I don't know. I mean, you, if you want to look at someone on the right who's called them out for this, Amazon.com, it was opening up two new plants and I believe it, it opened them up in, in New York and DC. After extensively surveying, yeah, yeah, that's their plan to open new headquarters in DC and New York. That's what they want to do. Tucker Carlson, you know, as someone on the right who talks about this, if he called them on the floor for this, and it's a really great interview if you want to see how the right is sort of in the process of changing. Um, And you know, Amazon really didn't have an explanation other than the fact that well, we benefit. Our bottom line benefits from having people who essentially have no lives outside of work pay their entire earnings for for these worthless uh, properties that you can never raise a family on uh, so that we can have all our talent centralized into one central location and have them work more and more and more for progressively less and less wealth that they can pass on to their children. Uh, okay, I'm very happy for their shareholders, but... I think society's priorities might need to be repositioned a little bit. Yeah, I was um, I was really surprised. I mean, when they when they picked uh, New York and DC, the, I guess the two most hated cities in the country, um, and for a you know national company that uh, like probably I don't know like two thirds of Americans probably use um, on a regular basis. Uh, it really and they I guess was this like a charade? This whole like year long thing where they. Um, you know, we're like going to different, asking for, you know, proposals from different like cities around Maybe the country. Maybe we'll build it in St. Louis. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> even, uh, my little town of Rochester, New York in Western New York, uh, submitted, submitted some kind of thing like angling for it. And then for them just to go with the two, the financial capital and cultural capital of the country and the political capital of the country is bizarre. Like why didn't they, if they had chosen like Detroit wow. or something, they would have gotten a lot more positive, uh, coverage to be like, oh, Amazon in Detroit, they're going to take the city by storm. They're going to revitalize it. So it's, it's not bizarre. It, it helps their bottom line. And <clears throat> you asked me what the connection was to things like consumer goods. Well, Amazon.com, it, it operates on very low margins. It doesn't make that much money on purchases, if anything. So, you know, you could see as every penny they saved gets sort of implicitly passed on to the consumer. But at, le- at what level do I really need my my shipment of, of like, you know, pens or, or my new microphone to cost like a buck or two less. And to what point do I need to have a society where I can work in a, in a municipality that can actually support a family that I want to raise? I, I feel because we, we've totally repositioned our priorities. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's, it's not original to say it's a double edged sword. Like, the things that Amazon provides are like pretty amazing. Like you can buy, there's a book about it called written about Amazon called the, the everything store. I think, um, you know, you can buy pretty much whatever you want in the world and it'll like come to you very quickly. You don't even have to leave your house. So that's like amazing. And, um, even, and, you know, people talk about, uh, the evils of these giant, uh, tech companies. Like they'll say, I'm not, I'm deleting my Facebook account or I'm never going on Twitter again. Uh, Sometimes they'll say, I'm not going to use Google anymore, but Google is so useful that um, pro- most people don't say that. But people really rarely say, like, I'm not going to use Amazon anymore. Because once you start yeah. using it, it'd be like saying, well, I'm not going to use my um, washer and dryer anymore. I'm just going to go back to the old-fashioned way of using a washboard and waiting for things to dry in line. Like, the, you well, know, that, that would be a life change. <laughs> these companies are a monopoly. I mean, I, I always wondered about this. In, in the 90s, we had this big freakout over Microsoft being a monopoly. 
But Amazon and Twitter are more monopolies than Microsoft ever was in their respective areas. Um, you know, I don't know if you wanted to talk about YouTube or culture or the yeah, new yeah. alternative platforms like Gab. I think we were going to transition to this, but Twitter seems to me to be a monopoly on micro communications and micro blogging. And Amazon certainly is a monopoly when it comes to getting good ship to you online. I, I don't know why this is never part of the conversation. I think it's, it's growing more. As, as Donald Trump would say, uh, it's being talked about more and more. Um, there's uh, Tim Wu uh, has a new book about um, monopoly in the you know e-commerce and technology sector, and he was on uh, Blogging Heads with Robert Wright recently. Um, so there's people who are thinking about it, and um, Matt Stoller is one such guy who uh, is writing about it and wants to break up all the big tech companies. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's going to be a growing thing once we see more and more how powerful these sites have become. Um, okay. So let's, let's talk about YouTube. Um, mm-hmm. so if you are going to, uh, onto YouTube, if you're kind of a, uh, a regular person, a normie, maybe even an NPC and you're searching for information about politics on YouTube, um, you're probably going to find more stuff from people coming from the right than people coming from the left. Um, yes, in a way. So, okay, so why do you think that is? Well, I should say this, that, you know, um, there are more numerical channels and there are more views on the right, but the left has more well-funded channels. I know you had the channel ContraPoints on blogging heads. And, I no, just as a practice, for people who are like, am I not naming the blogger? I always refer to the person as their channel and not as their real name, as just a matter of practice to avoid doxing. It's just – so you had ContraPoints on, and that's a very lucrative left-wing channel, a very popular one at that. But I think that when because you she, Because down, she has a, a Patreon and yeah, people well, very successful. And, yeah, a very successful one and, and – and the, the channel makes videos that are very uh, that are very popular, even though they're not very frequent. But I think you will notice that among like the plurality of channels, the by view and by the sheer number of channels, there are more channels on the right. Uh, now, YouTube's demographics s- swing male, and we know that men swing right, so that's one explanation. Another explanation, and the one that I prefer as I said in the beginning, is I think that the right is in a moment of total flux. I think that the channels, and certainly my channel, I created my channel to participate in a conversation, inspired very much like Blogging Heads TV. And I I was a huge fan of Blogging Heads initially, the minor plug. And I'm like, well, what if I, you know, brought my voice to this this thing where we would have a back and forth about, about current events and culture? I think that, you know... Again, like initially, because YouTube was so male, communities that were focused on gaming and atheism, and then there was this whole Gamergate thing that exploded that had kind of a, I mean, it had kind of an implicitly right-wing bias to it because the, the quote-unquote villains in that conflict were on the left. Um, but but I think that since then, and, and in the conversations that I like to participate in, a.k.a. not about video games, uh, uh, I think the reason why YouTube is more popular is because the the right is in chaos right now, and the right needs to have ideas being discussed. And YouTube, the plural, the, the, the smaller YouTube channels thrive on discussion and conflict and and interacting with each other. I think when you look at more left-wing channels like ContraPoints, it's much more presentation entertainment. And I think that's why the section of YouTube that's more right-wing um, or the that's more discussion-focused has the right-wing slant to it. 
Okay, um, I want to run two theories by you okay. uh, that are other ideas that are actually from the recent episode of Chapo Trap House, the leftist podcast that ContraPoints appeared on. Um, I don't oh. usually listen to Chapo, but I listen to this one because I like ContraPoints. Um, yeah. So one was the um, the idea that this is basically just talk radio. Um, yeah. So, you know, everyone knows that talk radio uh, was a heavily conservative medium. I guess it, it, it still is. Uh, liberals in the uh, 2000s tried to start their own version. Uh, Air America didn't work. Um, something about the format, um, people driving to work, uh, the deep voices of an uh, older conservative man or something. Uh, this was like, uh, this established the format of... Um, Conservatives are going to dominate this space, and that you know, like like you said, the you know, ContraPoints does these crazy like product, production value heavy costume change kind of things, um, yeah. whereas most of the conservative um, videos seem to be just a voice, or yeah. some, sometimes like some of your video, most of your videos are, are you don't even have anything on the screen; it's just like your logo or um, or like a picture or yeah. something, um, <laughs> or it's just a guy uh, like like us. It's just a guy, guy sitting well, in rooms it, talking. If my Patreon looked like ContraPoints, I put more production values <laughs> into it. Um, that, that's a promise, by the way. So, so okay. Well, we can, we can include the Patreon link. Uh, <laughs> no, no, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a bad time. I'm giving you a bad time. <laughs> um, but go but, ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so that's kind of like, um, and since you said these are mostly men um, mm-hmm. talking, um, you know, here's a man who's going to talk to you about something for half an hour or an hour. That's kind of like the kind of thing that a conservative audience um, wants to listen to as shown by talk radio. Yeah. So uh, the, the other one, I saw this episode. Another one was that, uh, excuse me, I step a little more. Another one, another criticism, Chapo, is it Chapo Trap House? Chapo Trap House, right? Yes. Chapo Trap House. Yeah, I always say it's like Tap House. Like it's a, no, but it's Trap House. Um, uh, so uh, that was one of their things. And I actually listened to that episode because I, I'm, I know I, I listen to them every now and again because it's interesting to see what how the left talks. The other the other one was that uh, it's talk radio. The other one was that it's sort of like it's the feeling of 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 friendship that you get. Like yes. you actually know the person. You're so ice. You're like an isolated beardo and sitting in your mother's basement. And this is sort of yeah. You want it. This was Matt, what Matt, Matt Christian you want said. A friend, yeah, right? you want a friend. You're a lonely guy. Uh, you want a friend. Here's yeah. your friend. He's appearing on the screen. I think there is an, a dimension to that. I think that people do use social media for personal interaction, and that's probably unhealthy. I'm not so sure it's really a right wing thing. Um, that because, for instance, uh, podcasts are dominated by the left. Uh, I, I don't know why YouTube is dominated by the right and podcasts are dominated by the left, but podcasts are certainly dominated by the left, as evidenced by Chapo Trap House's extraordinary success like unworldly success and yeah so they made their their patreon is is making over a million dollars a year um for their like bonus episodes i listened to chapo trapas when it first came out and my i I turned to my friend and i said so this is basically like rush limbaugh for the left like (laughs) i mean it it literally the first thing that struck me is this is talk radio for the left when when i talked about el chapo although i will say one thing that that's different on youtube uh YouTubers on the right, at least, are way more into conflict. I don't know of a right wing. I think there's a few right wing channels that are just presentation, and this is how things are, and how how much things suck. But almost almost sort of a matter of course, as a YouTuber, you're expected to talk to people you disagree with, and your fans want to see conflict. 
I have this podcast where I, I talk about, I talk to academics and authors and, and I'm giving them very much questions in the more conventional NPR style. This podcast is the least popular thing on my channel. The most popular things on my channel are where I talk with ContraPoints, where I talk with another YouTuber called Christy Winters, where I talk with another YouTuber called Cuck Philosophy, all on the left. People want to see conflict. So I think one difference with both talk radio of the right of past generations and with Chapo itself is that people on the right in YouTube, they want to have conflict because I think they want to see some kind of resolution or catharsis. They want to see who wins. Uh-huh. And uh, so, I mean, that's sort of my answer is that, you know, I, I do think that there's always in this present day when we're so atomized, there's always going to be, well, ContraPoints is my friend or Natalie. Well, Natalie's my friend. Well, Distributist is my friend where Sargon is my friend. And that's both left and right. But when it comes down to it, I think that we have I, – I, before I'm going to declare YouTube the next talk radio, I think what has to come to terms with the fact is that it's a much more conflicted place, a much more discussion-oriented place than the forms of media that are usually consumed on the left. So I think the theory would have to incorporate that. Yeah, Um I mean, what you're making me think of is Logging Heads TV, a, a pioneer in, in the space of having people who disagree talking to each Indeed. other on video. Uh, Logging Heads was founded in 2005, the same year as YouTube. Um, so obviously YouTube uh, has done somewhat better than Blogging Heads in taking over the world. And uh, yeah, but our stuff is, you know, after like 12 years, our stuff is now on YouTube instead of hosting our own videos. And so people can get it there. Um, yeah, what, what are the other differences? I mean, Chapo is stridently left and it was a, vo- it's a, vo- oh, it gave a voice to people who felt like they didn't have a voice, um, in the mainstream media. You know, there aren't going to, there weren't a lot of people saying like, you couldn't turn on the TV anywhere and find people who are like from the left, Hillary Clinton fucking sucks. <laughs> so and yeah. there, were, there were a lot of people out there who believe that. Um, so, so that was part of it. Uh, I mean, they're funny and they're talented is, is part of it as well. And I think, and they, they, had, they had very good timing of like launching exactly, um, when they did. Um, but yeah, I know they, they almost never have on people they disagree with. Um, they, I think they had Robbie Soave from Reason Magazine on one, yeah. at one point, and he's actually been a guest on this show. And, uh, and I think, uh, the, the boys at Chapo s- said afterwards, like, it kind of was a disaster and didn't work. Like, whatever their format is, it doesn't lend itself to actual, like, like, disagreement across the ideological space. So they pretty much stick well, with, with people from the left as guests and what they talk about. It's funny because a lot of their objections, at least economically, are very similar to those you'll hear regularly expressed on the distant right on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I understand that as I, I, I've sort of talked about Chapo Trap House in the past, now I'm in the process of making a video on them. They do seem to be very much in the business of a thousand reasons not to talk to the, the, the right. For instance, in that very same episode with ContraPoints, I heard three different explanations from Jordan Peterson. He's crazy. He's boring. And he's your next door neighbor, but I have no idea why people are listening to him. Like, they're all reasons not to listen to Jordan Peterson, but they don't make sense together. Oh. Right? Uh, so like, what, what is, is Jordan Peterson like a, an insane radical or is he boring Mr. Rogers that we, we already knew? Uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel that 
El Chapo does sell reasons for not having a conversation rather than a conversation. Um, I, I think they're, pri- they're primarily yeah. entertainers. Um, yeah. I, I think that's what the, what they're good at is um, making you laugh and and stuff. And when sometimes when you hear them like talking about actual like policy issues, like you can tell they're not really sure what they're saying or they're getting some of the details wrong. But but they're very funny guys. They have good conversations. They're good. Yeah, they're good what they do. Yeah. And you know, entertainment's a part of what we do. At U- like everyone does at YouTube too. And like everyone says they don't, but it's entertainment, right? And we'd be relying if it's, I mean, it's, hopefully it's not just entertainment. Hopefully people are learning or something or they're, they're hearing interesting ideas for the first time, but that's a part of it. And, but, you know, to contrast, I'll try to like, this is a format of YouTube that, uh, I really have been quite critical of in the past year that's been very popular on the right. Have people in the mainstream heard of internet blood sports? Uh, no, like this, so. this whole, okay, it's, it's a, it's a format where people like do like no holds bar live streams, right? And, uh, they, 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 they take whatever perspectives and they throw them in the room together. And, and that, I mean, like, no holds barred. I mean, like, if you come on and you want to deny the Holocaust, like, they'll put you in a debate room, right? Like, and they'll just hurl insults at each other. This, wait, this is, this is one, like, one channel or this is, this a, is a, this is a, a genre of, okay. of, of YouTube. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and it, it's meant to just, like, there's nothing censored. Except YouTube did take off a number of streams that did this, uh, most prominently one run by Ethan Ralph. Uh, it, it's sort of a no holds barred internet discussion where insults are perfectly fine, where nothing is taboo, uh, and, and it, it's supposed to have no perspective. It's supposed to be just the arguments. Uh, I think this has been incredibly destructive because it's created this culture where you know where the entertainment of the spectacle. Uh, of people making fools of themselves have taken priority of actually getting to the truth. And, and so it's, it's almost the opposite of, of Chapo. Like Chapo is like entertainment from an aloof point of view. The internet blood sports on YouTube are like a mudslinging, mud wrestling version of the same thing. But at the same time, I feel, you know, control and truth is really put into the back seat. And, and any kind of stand, I mean, I, I don't know. Chapo certainly, if you look at it as entertainment, it's quite good, right? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I hadn't, I wasn't aware of that. It sounds, um, somewhat, uh, <laughs> frightening. I, um. No, it's supposed to be, right? Yeah. Um, actually, that reminds me, there was one, there was a, another one of your videos I wanted to ask about, um, which is, uh, the one you did about, uh, Super Chat and. Oh, yeah. Destroying the alt-right. The alt-right. So I was only vaguely aware of what Super Chat was, so can you define that first and then. Well, Super Chats are really what drove the, the internet blood sports thing. So super chat. So you it used to be that, uh, YouTubers got their money off of ads to a certain extent. And then Patreon is a supplement, right? So the, uh, the, the ads, essentially YouTube would share some of the ad revenue with you, except for about a year and a half ago, YouTube, because it was afraid of a lot of forces emerging in the wake of Donald Trump decided that it wanted to, turn temperature down. And because of that, they instituted an algorithm that would demonetize videos that they thought were too controversial that might scare away advertisers. And this resulted in a general demonetization and a reliance on Patreon and PayPal for a majority of channels that covered political stuff. Um, so what, 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 what happened was that far from turning down the temperature, they, they, they implemented this other thing called a super chat. A super chat is somebody puts a, part of money down they send it to you directly and youtube takes 30 percent google takes 30 percent and then you read out whatever that person says 
The difficulty... I didn't know it was thirty percent. That's crazy. What and YouTube and is I, I getting away with thirty percent highway robbery? Okay, don't don't quote me on that. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I don't make very much money from super chats. Okay, because but it's, it's not thing, it's right? not like it costs YouTube anything to do the super chat. Like that that's crazy. That's like uh, buying well, like gifs or like stickers on, <laughs> you know. They're they're giving you the money, but the thing is, this is driven the internet. The internet blood sports has been like not only are these people who are like hate each other's. It's very Jerry. It has a sort of Jerry Springer dimension to it. Like it's, it's like oh, let's put a communist and a Nazi in the room together and watch them fight it out, right? Like uh, it, 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 it like not only are these two people fighting who just are way from the far left and far right, and there's drama. The the, the, the audience gets to sort of amp it up with super chats because they get to send in their thoughts and then the moderator reads out the super chat, which, which is, which is a great way to make money if you're a content creator uh, and is interacting with a discussion. I like the format, but it hasn't again encouraged the culture of spectacle. And I, 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 I think that in many ways, and there's, and I've, uh, I guess in the video you're referring to, I talked about, I mean, the alt, the, 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 the movement formerly known as the alt right, which I now think is dead, uh, has, has in many ways collapsed under the fact that the people who were trying to advance it and give it respectability decided that they wanted to be more internet celebrities and spectacle generators rather than people who actually were involved in some kind of, uh, some kind of discussion. And I think that's what that, among another of things, made movements, this particular movement, a clearinghouse for people who were trying to justify paranoid delusions about the political order. And guess who wants to justify paranoid ideas about the political order? Schizophrenics, right? People who ordinarily have mental deficiencies. They'll be attracted to this kind of, uh, uh, dialogue where, where everything is a conspiracy and they'll start parading, uh, uh, talking points or movements that give them this, this out. And I think this is really what's happened. We, we saw in, in stuff like, was it the synagogue shooter? Uh, I think that's what, what you're seeing, right? It, and it's, uh, it's ultimately destructive. I, I think that, you know, it has to do with the fact that our political dialogue generally in the society has collapsed and we've all kind of gone away to the fringes. Uh, and, and certain perhaps correct fringe ideas have been lost behind, you know, objectionably fringe ideas. Uh, but at, that's, that's sort of where we are. Um, as tragic as that is, right? Yeah. So, so to clarify, so the, so the person who's sending in the super chat, they pay like $5 and then the moderator has to say like, XYZ, whatever, whatever they yeah. wrote down. What if it's something like, you know, are, were people sending in things like, you know, I, su- <laughs> my mother sucks my, sucks my cock or like things to embarrass the people or was it things like the Holocaust is a lie? What, what, what were the yeah, things that, that was, were sending in? They were sending. Okay. And, and this has changed. I should say this has definitely changed in the last six months, but initially when the system was engaged, it was essentially a way for people to take fringe ideas like their conspiracy theories, usually involving subjects you just mentioned, which I, I have basically said I'd, I'd never mentioned on my channel, and uh, and 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 essentially hear them coming out of the mouth of of people who are much more prominent. Uh, now, I, I think that, like I said, people have become like there's no obligation, and recently people have taken a measure of of saying like, okay, we're not reading out justifications of mass democides 
we're, we're not reading out, you know, personal attacks or things that could get this channel taken down. But in many ways, I feel like the hunger for this, like it's, it's a hunger for a spectacle. It's a hunger for people feel like they're suppressed, like they can't say things at work. That they And, and they, they use this platform cathartically, in my opinion, to try to get these sentiments expressed and and talked about uh, by people who they see as authorities. Uh, and and so I think that this has just been been damaging um, because I, th- I thought that why well, I had sort of hoped that the, the YouTube would be something that would be much more respectable, much more something that maybe introduce ideas into the mainstream. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, in some ways it seems like kind of a closed loop of mm-hmm. the, like a certain set of people are, you know, egging each other on and screaming at each other and having a grand old time. Um, and to the average person who is kind of uninitiated or doesn't really know what's going on, it would be like forbidding um, to watch the stuff and they're not going to, so they're not going to imbibe the, the like ideology that's, that's underlying it. Um, I mean, my, my other thought is, is getting back to this, you know, economic determinism thing that I discussed a little bit in the, uh, when I came on your podcast, like, yeah, yeah, you know, um, Dial Soap does not want to be on a have their ad playing before uh, someone denying the Holocaust, and yeah. so they're they're not going to advertise with YouTube if uh, YouTube does that. And it's not always these political things. There was a story about a year ago with these disturbing videos that were aimed at children um, that seemed to have like nightmarish content that were those generated yeah. by algorithms. And like you know, companies don't want to be associated that. with that with that stuff. So YouTube, you know, is still kind of in its infancy um, and hasn't worked all this shit out. But yeah, so there, the companies don't want this this stuff. And then the companies, I guess, exerted a moderating influence on the content creators uh, because they were at least somewhat worried about getting their ads taken away. And then when the ads were taken away, <laughs> what are, what's yeah. the funding source? Well, it's people who are really excited about um, helping them. And the people who are most excited about helping them are the most extreme because uh, you know, yeah. I, uh, I'm ashamed to say I don't support a single Patreon anywhere, even though there's, uh, some podcasts and stuff that I really enjoy. I'm just like, you know what? I could do something better with my 60 bucks a year than give it to these podcasters. Maybe, maybe I'll start soon. Maybe I'll cross the uh, Rubicon of becoming a, uh, a patron. But, um, yeah, it's mostly people who are like super fans. And, you know, the super fans are probably a little like weird. <laughs> and because normal people going about their lives are not super fans, they have other shit to do and other things to direct their money towards and yeah so then it the, this whole like reading things aloud is i don't know it's like reverse orwellian or something it's like the the the, the mass has taken over like become the puppeteer of the um the supposed like more powerful person and uh it is forcing them to to say things that they wouldn't normally say so i don't know it, but it's, it's not it's not really the masses i guess it's more like the uh, very excited individuals who are really passionate about whatever and are willing to spend five bucks to hear someone say, you know, the Holocaust is a lie, <laughs> which is well, I, a weird person, you know, is going to do that. I, I'm of the opinion that that these the people will be a lot less extreme if they had their grievances addressed by the mainstream. I think that, like, I, I always, you know, I I think the the mainstream discussion, especially on the left, and it is more or less dominated by the left, has had a very, very lopsided conversation about a number of problems that modernity introduces. There's been a very, very lopsided conversation about privilege. And I think things like, well, the recent lawsuit that Harvard has undertaken doing, do, owing to racial admissions has revealed this. Um, and it has a very, very lopsided conversation about 
Well, I mean, even a discussion on climate change reveals this. And I, I, I don't, I don't doubt that people feeling like they're left out by mainstream, mainstream sources are really going to uh, glom onto extreme theories. Uh, there needs to be some accounting for this, right? Uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the mainstream narrative that, that comes out of the New York Times is that, is that, well, uh, Trump supporters are, I mean, I, I'm just looking at like, uh, the one I read from Michelle Goldberg just the other day, uh, and, and she, she wrote something like, well, maybe they all, maybe they all are just terrible people, mm. uh, referring to Trump supporters. Uh, this is sort of the perspective that comes out of, a lot of the mainstream leftist publications and your alternatives are Fox news, which is again, you know, sort of dominated by with perhaps Tucker Carlson, notwithstanding is dominated by sort of the neoliberal economic point of view, which might be equally alienating. And, and then, you know, you're, you're looking for some alternative, right? You're looking for some way to redress these grievances. Um, you know, like, and, and we can, we can talk about like, you know, and I've been a huge opponent of this category called whiteness. I think it's, you know, the, you know, there is something that's, that you could call Christendom. There is something you could call European identity in a certain sense, but whiteness has become like, it's become a, a, a whipping boy for the left, but it, it, it really is a very sloppy way to talk about privilege in our modern society. Uh, you know, looking at Harvard's admission statistics would, would demonstrate this, right? You have, you know, I have the statistics in front of me. You've got about 50% of their or their student body is, is quote-unquote white, um, which is slightly less than the population of the United States. But there is privilege in that. And people who are who are sort of defending Harvard's emissions in, in light of recent criticism over Asian emissions say, well, look, you know, there's a lot of very privileged people that are getting in with horrible grades and they're white. Well, sh- sure, but they come from a very, very select category inside this thing that we call whiteness. And that means that overall, if you're someone living in Kansas or Missouri or Detroit, uh, in one of these Rust Belt communities, you're not privileged at all. And so I, I, at some point, I mean, you know, how much is the lopsided nature of the progressive discussion on privilege and power relationships not driving a lot of these things these, these a lot of uh these these ex- extreme conspiracy theories that we see pop up every now and again on youtube and alternative platforms yeah um it's complicated i'm not like a huge fan of the either the like power of whiteness critique that tanasi coates like spent the last five years propagating or the privileged stuff um in general and um blogging heads uh Host uh, Phoebe Maltzbovi wrote a book called *The Perils of Privilege* that was a critique of uh, basically, you know, the whole checker privilege movement uh, that made sense to me. Um, yeah, I could see that. You know, I think something the people on the left don't like acknowledging is that like their uh, moves in a certain direction can provoke a backlash um, from the other side, and people seem to think that. That that's akin to um, saying that like they're responsible for you know for like we supported gay marriage so people on the right got mad and voted for Donald Trump and um, that means that gay people are responsible for the rise of Donald Trump like that's that simplistic argument is what they object to and yeah that doesn't 
makes sense. It's not true. And, but you know, it's, you know, when you, when you do something, it, cre- it often creates a uh, counter reaction. And that, <laughs> that makes sense to me. Like the civil rights movement created a counter reaction and it was like, was the counter reaction worth it? Well, in the case of the civil rights movement, like, yes, definitely the uh, counter- political counter reaction was worth it. In the case of some other things that the left is pursuing, um, maybe like constantly talking about white privilege, uh, I don't think the counter reaction is, is worth it. And yeah, the random person in, um, you know, living in Missouri, random white person, uh, hearing about white privilege, uh, probably looks at him or herself and is like, you know, what, what privilege do I, do I have? That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and that fuels I resentment. Mean, and yeah, that it, can... I, I don't see it necessarily as like worth it or not. Uh, I, I see it more as we're going to have a certain way of talking about problems in the mainstream, right? And and this will persist regardless of whether gay marriage is passed or not. Uh, how how are we going to structure our conversation on these problems? And I, I think it's you know just going to like why do people in in Montana why are they skeptical of global warming, for instance, or anthropogenic climate change? Like you know, there's a certain amount of uncertainty in in this, and but people in Montana are much more likely to be skeptical than people in New York. I can't think of the, I can't help but think of the fact that every time, that for a person in Montana, being serious about anthropogenic climate change means that we're not going to open that new fracking project that's going to open new jobs for my town. Whereas in a New Yorker, getting serious about, and, and, you know, global warming is, I'm going to buy myself a new luxury vehicle, a Tesla, or, you know, isn't the fact that people like off-roading in, in, in Montana, isn't that like a terrible hobby to have? It's never, I'm serious about global warming, so I'm never going to take another gl- trip to Europe. Or I'm never going to send my kid to an out-of-state college because of the airfare back and forth. Like, that's never part of the conversation. And if it was, if that was the conversation we were having, I would, wouldn't be surprised if we saw a lot more skepticism about this coming from 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 communities that are blue. Yeah, I, 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 I see some, like, I, like pre bono, but I mean that has to be part of it, right? I see some of that on Twitter. I, one, I can think at least of one person who was like, "I'm, I'm not going to like, I'm going to fly at most once a year um, because of the carbon footprint." But, I, but I think also like, you know, uh, people are. You know, when I was when I was a kid, it was like, "What should you do about the environment?" Was you should recycle, and yeah. you know, remember to do that. And that was like a, a, an individual action that that everyone could do fairly easily. Uh, you know, there's no individual action that any one person can do that would, or even one person's entire lifetime of actions that would have any measurable dent on uh, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, it's True. all. It has to be like uh, communal action and and government action. Uh, but yeah, I take your point that the you know the interests uh, diverge. There um, here in upstate New York, there is fracking. It's more it's more in the southern tier near the Pennsylvania border. There was a big fight about it. I think Andrew Cuomo banned it after a couple years. Um, but you know that was a fight between people who you know there's some people who live near the fracking who want it because it will create jobs. There are other people because they're worried about the environmental consequences of the fracking uh, who who don't want it, and then kind of the uh, liberal people who are far away from it don't want it because they're worried about the environment as well. There's another book that I think might be very very instrumental to understand this, and that's Nassim Nicholas Taleb's Skin in the Game. Uh, you know, I, I he's a brilliant person. I think one of the best thinkers of our age. I think the big problem with the left communicating to the right, even though we're talking about the same problems here, is the fact that through a lot of these 
linguistic things, and they seem trivial when we talk about them, right? Why privilege seems trivial, right? But A, I, I think if you looked at the emissions of Ivy Leaks, you'd see a non-trivial discrepancy between different types of white people, which is very real when it comes to doling out real privilege. Um, but 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 the, the white privilege language signals to to conservative white people or conservatives living in the middle states or conservatives living in, in not in in cities that whoever is having this discussion about privilege and power is fundamentally unconcerned about how much their interests are being represented and is very very willing to when because because when we talk about redistributing the question is always who who is going to get taken from and who's going to get given to and this language signals that who is ever having this conversation is very very uninterested in in addressing their issues with privilege and is very very comfortable with taking privilege from their communities taking wealth away from their communities and that means that they do not really have skin in the game when it comes to those discussions. And therefore, they're very, very uncomfortable with having them as representatives if we're going to have a national or international conversation about wealth redistribution, wealth redistribution, about repositioning our economic policy, or about something like global warming, which is going to, at the end of the day, take wealth away from some people and give it to others. And I think that's really what the core of the issue is, is that we haven't con- people the the decision makers in the coast have not convinced the center of this country that that they take their interests seriously as a matter of fact they they say everything on a daily basis to indicate that they don't take their interests seriously um so just um maybe to wrap this particular topic up um as someone who went to an Ivy League school i would say the um the two people that have or the two groups of people who had the biggest benefit in admissions um, were legacies uh, people whose parents mm-hmm. went there and uh, student athletes. Um, mm-hmm. You could immediately tell who student athletes were often because they were in much better shape or uh, larger than the average student, but you could also tell based on their personality and uh, academics uh, that they wouldn't have gotten in otherwise. And in the legacies, it was harder to tell exactly, but if you actually went after, if you, you know, uh, dissolved college sports and said this is entirely going to be like you know everything is going to be a club competition and just for amateurs you know like real amateurs not the kind that um uh you know are supposed to be amateurs then go on to play in the NBA um and uh, no longer give a boost for people who have uh relatives who went to the university before them then uh that would definitely strike a blow <laughs> against against privilege and there's but that will probably never happen uh, because the alumni are legacies and they want their kids to get in. And the alumni love yeah. being boosters of the school's um, sports teams. Uh, so, but, so why if you so, got rid of the category of whiteness, you'd end up with a number of ethnicities that have like, so, so for instance, I would imagine that this system would mean that Episcopals are very, very, very privileged by Harvard, but Southern Baptists or Scotch Irish Southern Baptists are very, very underprivileged. And probably have a harder time getting in than most groups. So this this category that we have in place here, it, in many ways, it prevents a more nuanced conversation about. And, and maybe you could look at it in terms of legacies as well, right? But but you could break it down in any number of ways, and it would tell a very different story than how we talk about it in the mainstream. Yeah, I, I agree with that mostly. But the I mean, the other thing is, um, I don't know if this is you know for the top tier universities, they definitely want this thing to happen, which is they want. 
they want diverse classes, which means they want someone from Wyoming. If you want to go to an, if you want your kid someday go to an Ivy League school, move to Wyoming um, because mm-hmm. they love having students from from all fifty states. Um, and if you you know, there's a lot of people who grew up in coastal you know big coastal areas who go to these schools. At the same time, if you grew up in a rural area and you can make that kind of your mark of distinction, like that definitely helps because they they want people um, from all over the country. And they want people from different areas. And there were a lot of people who came to Yale University from, uh, from, you know, not wealthy suburbs, uh, different parts of the country. And I think the admissions, the admissions people like, like value that. I, I've heard, they I've heard them say, I've heard them say that. I would very much like to see, and I've never seen this. I could never, I couldn't find this. I would very much like to see how the Ivy League admissions work when you break them down. If you take whiteness apart, and break it down into constituent ethnic categories and constituent geographic categories. I, I, I wonder. Yeah, well, I, I, wonder I think it, it would depend. I mean, in some ways, that doing that might show the emptiness of whiteness as a category. Uh, speaking for myself, uh, I, I half my family, half my family was from um, Jewish Eastern Europe, and half my family was from uh, Maryland, Virginia, uh, the Appalachian part of Virginia. So, you know, what would you categorize me as? Are Jews even white? We're not going to touch that one. But you get, like, this, yeah, it's an opposed category. And, um, you know, thinking thinking about it uh, too finely, I think, shows that it's not, you know, like, not the best category to, to use. Yeah, no, I, I guess I'm not really trying to get into a conversation about race. I really try to avoid that. I just think that the racial conversation illustrates a fundamental disconnect when it comes to re- being representatives of the interests of certain people in this country. And I think that is what drove Donald Trump's election. And I think that will even after Donald Trump, even after the big, bad, orange racist man is gone, uh, th- this will continue to derive politics uh, it, it, on the mainstream, it will continue to impede conversations that might need to happen. And it will continue to put, I think, the mainstream in a difficult position where it realizes that radical ideas are needed, but it simultaneously feels like it can't discuss them because discussing them will necessarily bring in people who have all sorts of dangerous and scary ideas and, 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 and might be hyper aggressive and might cause more damage than they, then they bring solutions. So I think that I think that we need to address this at some point. Um, if we we've gone about ninety minutes, um, but there is one okay. more thing I want to ask you. If we could sure, cover sure. it quickly, and that is uh, Tucker Carlson. Uh, you mentioned him at least once. Um, why do you think he's the person who? What's what's your view of him, and why do you think he's the person who is who of all the Fox <laughs> talent? Uh, people on your part of the political spectrum uh, like him the most? No, I have to say, like, I'm always skeptical of people like Tucker who are mainstream people because, but I think there's a reason why he he's liked a lot more. And that is, is that he seems to be getting to the heart of a lot of stuff that we're talking about. The fact that there is a huge percentage of people who don't feel enfranchised by the modern mainstream media. He goes to the heart of that. He's off the reservation when it comes to things like economics and foreign policy. I know that he was sort of a libertarian in his previous iterations. I know that, you know, in the John Stewart era, he was the icon of the, the bow tie and the, and giving you 
these these sort of pre-digested answers that come from you know the, the the they basically seem like they come from pamphlets or or things that are developed by think groups, but but recently he he's he's called into question like the whole economic questions the he he's he's called into question who benefits like where is the middle class where is the American worker, and and these are things that have been really put into the background of the left for a very, very long time. And they've been put into the background, I think, in, in terms of the Republican Party for a very long time. And he's resurrected those questions. And he's simultaneously done that. And he's also gone to people from, like, you know, uh, the Antifa protesters, people from the mainstream, who've expressed sort of these these opinions on privilege. And he's really, I think, taken those questions to them in a very radical way. I mean, not, not a radical way, but in a very flat way that, that puts in stark relief where, where the questions a lot of workers want to have answered and where our current, our current establishment is both on the mainstream left and in many cases on the radical left. I, I don't think that, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, from, from Antifa are really concerned about the middle class in America or about where, where privilege lies when it comes to uh, people who live in Montana and Wyoming. It doesn't seem to be a priority. And I think that Tucker Carlson highlights that problem and his existence on Fox news highlights sort of the staleness with a lot of the other hosts there, a lot of the other dialogue they have, which just feels like it's, it's, uh, it's, it's cut and paste from, from Reagan stuff. Uh, yeah, I would say the overall Fox ideology does seem, uh, you know, very stale. And I think when I, uh, getting back to the comments on our previous discussion, when I mentioned Fox as an asset of the right, people in the comments were like, like, this guy's out to lunch if he thinks Fox matters at all. Um, I mean, Fox, you know, the demographics is like Fox is like old people watching TV all day. They watch Fox, um, such as the president of the United States. Uh, yeah, I would just say for my part, um, I, Carlson, uh, strikes me as like, uh, utterly cynical phony. Um, he's had like, like four or five really? different reinventions. Um, he's, as far as I know, the only person who has had a show on Fox, CNN, and MSNBC. Uh, apparently early in his career, he was a legitimate, like, magazine journalist who wrote, like, profiles of people that, uh, <laughs> were well done and well respected. So he's not, uh, you know, he's not kind of like a Sean Hannity type where it's like, what, you know, what, what is this guy actually thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, he was on Crossfire. Crossfire got killed by, John Stewart, and then he had his own show called Tucker on MSNBC, in which he still had the bow tie, but it was untied. I don't know if you ever saw this. It would hang around. His... I'm not a big TV watcher. Yeah, so so yeah, it was it was just so uh, so cute that he you know he was like you know this is after hours with with Tucker. Um, and but so then he was I think he was still kind of conservative. This is before MSNBC was a pure like left network, although it's not now. They have uh, they still have conservative people uh, hosting shows. Um, but anyway, and then he gets on Fox and he like reinvents himself for time number four or five. And now he's just, you know, like hard right kind of stuff to rile, <laughs> to rile up the crowds is how I yeah. view it. I would just say the whole, the whole thing that where those, uh, Antifa people went to his house was just totally stupid and a total gift to him making him seem like a besieged, vil- a besieged victim. Uh, and, well, sure, and sure. that, that kind mean, of tactics are, is ridiculous. I certainly can't gaze into the man's soul. Like I said, I'm always skeptical of television personalities when they have revelations, right? Like, you know, who knows whether it's a genuine political change of heart or who knows if it's contrived to get on a bandwagon that was signaled by Trump. I don't know if anyone but God can answer that question. But 
soul searching of Tucker Carlson aside. Yeah. And, uh, and ultimately it doesn't matter what he feels in his heart of hearts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we, we get the product that he, that he produces. It, it does seem like it, it seems to me, and I could, maybe I'm not cynical enough about this. It seems to me to be an opening of the right. It seems to be saying that we're going to entertain new ideas. Now, I guess it, Maybe false hope on my part. Maybe we could get some of these questions answered or given a bitter platform. Uh, but, but to me, I don't know. I mean, doesn't the left see some hope in the fact that the right is finally, it seems to me, taking the concerns of the lower middle class a little more seriously? I'm guessing most people on the left would not recognize <laughs> that as happening. Um, I guess, yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's, it's tough. I think, you know, it, it's it's a good question to see who actually will be the representative of of the more rural parts of this country. My feeling is that people like Chapo Trap House have no interest in talking to people from that strata of life. I think their their view of them is is more or less like the right views of NPCs. They they want to use them as a as sort of a a a a, a block that they can profess concern about, but never actually talk to uh, well, or, or entertain I, I, opinions that, that you hear from somebody who comes from that strata. I think what they would say or, or someone associated with their political position would say is like, these people need to hear the, like hear the truth of socialism and then they'll realize their class interests lie with, you know, they, they have much more in common with an African-American person uh, working as a home health aide in New York city uh, than they do with like the guy who owns the factory or whatever in their mm. town. Um, so, you know, there's a hope that Bernie Sanders or someone parroting, not parroting, someone delivering a similar message, um, will be able to, uh, appeal to people who dismiss the, the Democratic Party for, for years. Um, I have no I, idea I, if I that's true. But I mean, the question would remain, right? This is always the thing. Like, what, what socialism, if you would imagine, uh, the question of socialism is always qui bono, right? The question that that's what Lenin said, right? It's always who, whom. Uh, if if the if we were, became a socialism, and you know, I like I said, I'm I have no, I don't feel like I have a dog in the game for capitalism, particularly the the title distributist might kind of give you a hint of that. But if we became a socialism, and uh, and the the guys that. El Chapo were the people who were the new economic managers. <laughs> I think I that think, would be a mistake. I think, I think you, well, but I think you'd have a, if, even if they were more educated versions of people with that perspective, I think if you were a person who lived in rural Arkansas or Montana, I would, I wouldn't feel very confident that my economic interests would, would get priority if, if people like that were put in charge of, of the department of the economy in, in our new, in our new socialist system. Uh, and I don't. I, and there's lots of things that I think that the middle of America is is deluded about uh, when it comes to how the world works. But that question, the question of whether whether people of the strata that contains El Chapo have their interest at hearts, I, I think they've got a good point there. I, I wouldn't want to be a, a person from from that strata if we became a, a, a completely managed economy and the people managing the economy. Were, were, were people like El Chapo or, or like I said, more edgy, like 
Paul Krugman merged with El Chapo. <laughs> uh, I, I, I wouldn't want that life for myself. Uh, you know, I, I can, I can be honest about that. And just like I can be honest that I, I wouldn't want to be locked in one of these black inner city communities. They, they sound terrible. Uh, but I, I think that's just going to be a, a political reality we're dealing with these days. Yeah. And, um, there's the question of whether the, uh, you know, the part of the left that contains, um, Chapo and, uh, Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, whether they are socialists, whether they are social democrats, um, you know, uh, if they're social democrats, I don't think anyone is going to be put in charge of the, um, uh, Department of Economy, um, because it wouldn't be a planned economy, it would, uh, be a market economy that has much higher redistribution. Um, so well, that's, that sounds... that's always the question, what's socialism, right? Right. I know Blogging had did a fascinating episode on that previously, right? Yeah. Because it's socialism or social democracy, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, there's, yeah, there's ferment on both sides. Why don't we, why don't we leave it there? Uh, cause we've, we've gone, we've gone on for a while. I think I'm losing my voice. Um, okay. So, can, so tell people where they can find your content if they so desire. Okay. Well, like I said, I have, uh, I have a, I have a blog, a, a sort of collective blog with a bunch of different people, uh, entitled, uh, the Obscura Media. Uh, it's on WordPress, and I have a more popular YouTube channel called The Distributist. And, you know, I discuss a very, very broad diversity of topics. So uh, pop on down. I'm sure I'll probably disagree with a lot of things, but maybe it's part of a balanced intellectual diet. So, <laughs> uh, Yeah, so we do encourage that here at Blogging Heads TV. Uh, okay. Very much inspired by Blogging Heads. <laughs> I'm, I'm a huge fan of you guys. So. Okay, well, thank you very much. Okay, so thank you to our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks a lot. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.